Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and Embedded is back. And we recently realized it's hard to assess a politician who has virtually no political record. But with Donald Trump, we tried anyway. And we wound up with stories and lessons from the record he does have in business and on TV. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Soren hanging out with some mountain goats at Lake of the Angels in Olympic National Park. This podcast was recorded at 4.09 p.m. on Thursday, the 19th of October. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. To keep up with all of NPR's political coverage, check out npr.org, download the NPR One app, or listen to your local public radio station. Okay, here's the show. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our weekly roundup of political news. Former President George W. Bush gave a speech that everyone seems to be talking about, plus the festering controversy over presidential communication with the families of fallen service members. There's a bipartisan bill to shore up the Affordable Care Act, at least in the short term, but what are its prospects in Congress and beyond? And of course, can't let it go. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. All right, so it's not every day that we start the podcast with a speech by a former president, but... The fact that former President George W. Bush is on the public stage and talking about the current president is news in itself. But what he said and how he said it is also notable. You might say that George W. Bush wants to make America great again. (laughs) Someone wrote that. (laughs) Domenico. You know, it's really remarkable. You had uh, President George W. Bush take to uh, the uh, lectern at uh, the the George W. Bush Institute. They had a forum that they're holding in New York this week. You know, the thing is with President Bush, he's somebody who left office uh, very unpopular. He pretty much stayed out of the spotlight. He didn't really criticize or go after President Obama, even though President Obama won largely as the anti-Bush. You didn't see George W. Bush out there. Now... You see him taking a different kind of tack. Uh, he went after kind of the worldview of President Trump without naming Trump. Let's hear. It's kind of a long clip, but it's just worth listening to. Bigotry seems emboldened. Our politics seems more vulnerable to conspiracy theories and outright fabrication. There are some signs that the intensity of support for democracy itself has waned, especially among the young who never experienced the galvanizing moral clarity of the Cold War, or never focused on the ruin of entire nations by socialist central planning. Some have called this democratic deconsolidation. Really, it seems to be a combination of weariness, frayed tempers, and forgetfulness. We've seen our discourse degraded by casual cruelty, At times, it can seem like the forces pulling us apart are stronger than the forces binding us together. Argument turns too easily into animosity. Disagreement escalates into dehumanization. Too often, we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions, forgetting the image of God we should see in each other. We've seen nationalism distorted into nativism, We've forgotten the dynamism that immigration has always brought to America. 
We see a fading confidence in the value of free markets and international trade, forgetting that conflict, instability, and poverty follow in the wake of protectionism. So President Bush was clearly talking in a lot of moments here about President Trump, but he didn't actually didn't actually say President Trump. But one thing that, that Bush said really struck me. He said uh, a combination of weariness and other things. Weariness struck to me because this is a week, and I know we're going to talk about it later on in the show, but I think it applies here as well. This is a week where President Trump stands in the Rose Garden and says something that is demonstrably false about uh, his predecessors. And once again, he politicizes the personal suffering of military families. And it was remarkable how unremarkable that was, because in one way or another, there's an episode like that seemingly every few weeks now. And I think it just leaves anyone who follows our politics or covers our politics or is engaged in our politics weary and kind of almost beaten down by having to have that conversation and having to cover that story. And I've often rolled my eyes at the idea of normalization, but it does feel like in one way or another, President Trump repeatedly saying things that just aren't true or behaving in ways that are outside the bounds of politics has become a normal occurrence. So does former President Bush coming out and saying this? And earlier this week, you also had uh, John McCain uh, criticizing nationalism in, in sort of a similar way. Does that change anything? Is there a conversation that's happening? Or is this just like a couple of dudes who are kind of just getting up and saying things without actually naming names? I think unquestionably, we're seeing a fracturing of our American politics. I mean, we're standing at a moment right now when no one's quite sure where politics is headed. I, I kind of see us as looking at four political parties right now. We're looking at uh, this kind of conservative populism that President Trump was uh, fueled to win by, which was based on in part on nativism and white grievance and some economic issues, uh, but m a lot of cultural uh, baggage. Um, then there's the liberal populism, the strain that George W. Bush is also speaking against when he talks about socialist central planning and how that gave rise uh, to Bernie Sanders. And when you look at polling on where young people stand on socialism as compared to older Americans who lived through the Cold War, that word socialism doesn't have the same resonance with younger voters, the kinds of people who fueled Bernie Sanders' rise. Then the other two parties that I kind of see are this um, right and left of center uh, pragmatism, pragmatic group, and establishment. I think the well, they're the or establishment. They would, but because, now they're called the establishment because that's the way you know the post World War II American security apparatus and democratic um, you know institutions have been created and held up by you know the McCain's of the world, the Cork Bob Corkers of the world. The senator from Tennessee was come out and criticized uh, President Trump, George W. Bush, uh, Jeb Bush. These are the kinds of Republicans. There's probably nobody right now in the Trump era who have been more alienated, more isolated, more lost in the world as far as what they want, uh, you know, and who used to be in control than this right of center, pragmatic Republican. You know, people on the left, Democrats, are used to fighting against uh, conservatism or Republicans. They've got the resistance. But what do the Republicans have? Right. And their never Trump kind of attitude didn't work in the primaries. Their campaigns were frustrated because they couldn't take down the piece of the titanium pie that they saw with President Trump and candidate Trump and now President Trump. So 
where they go, they they feel very much lost in the wilderness. And people like that are now starting to, even in muted ways, come out to try to talk against President Trump. But Tam, you asked, where does this go? Yeah. And I think we've seen the roadmap for where it goes. We saw it with Corker last week. And I talked about this a couple podcasts ago, that often when somebody brings a substantial concern about President Trump into into the public, especially someone from his own party, Trump often responds by tweeting some sort of personal insult, and then the entire thing becomes boiled down to, oh, it's another feud. And any sort of criticism that, that started the conversation gets pushed out of the way that it's talked about and, and covered in cable news and other parts, and it just becomes, it's another Trump feud, and it's another Trump feud is where the president loves to be, where he's being proactive, and he's he's looking tough, and the the initial criticism, like, I'm worried this guy's going to start World War III, gets lost. Which was what Bob Corker said. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the latest Trump feud. But I think it's important to go back to where this began because this isn't just the latest Trump feud. This is something that became that but started out somewhere very different. So on October 4th, four U.S. Green Berets were killed in an ambush in Niger. This is the deadliest combat incident since President Trump took office. That day, the White House said that President Trump had been briefed. The next day, October 5th, Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said this from the White House press briefing room. Names are being withheld at this time as part of the next of kin notification process. Our thoughts and prayers are with the families and friends of the fallen service members who made the ultimate sacrifice in defense of the freedoms we hold so dear. So the next day at, at the next White House press briefing, a reporter asked, President Trump tweets about everything. Why hasn't he said anything about this? And Sarah said, I, I made a, a, a statement on behalf of the administration yesterday in the opening. Um, obviously, any time one of the members of our great military are injured, uh, wounded or killed in action, that is certainly uh, something that we take very seriously. Um, our thoughts and prayers are with those individuals. We're continuing to review uh, and look into this. And as we have more details, we'll certainly let you guys know. So fast forward, it is now Monday of this week. President Trump still hasn't tweeted, still hasn't made a public statement or, or put out a written statement. And he held this press conference in the Rose Garden at the White House. And one of the reporters asked him why he still hadn't said anything about the four service members killed in Niger. And this was his response. I've written them personal letters. Uh, they been sent or they're going out tonight, but they were written during the weekend. Uh, I will at some point during the the period of time call the parents and uh, the families because I have done that traditionally. And then he turned and seemed to make it about why he was doing things better than past presidents had. The traditional way, if you look at uh, President Obama and other presidents, most of them uh, didn't make calls. A lot of them didn't make calls. I like to call when it's appropriate, when I think I'm able to do it. So then uh, later in the press conference, and I know this is going on for a long time, but it's good to just get it all out there. Later in the press conference, Trump then sort of walked back that statement saying this. Earlier you said that President Obama never called the families of fallen soldiers. How can you make that claim? I don't know if he did. No, no, no. Uh, I, I, was, I was told that he didn't often, and a lot of presidents don't. They write letters. I do, excuse me, Peter. I do a combination of both. 
sometimes it's it's a very difficult thing to do, but I do a combination of both. Uh, you know, it's interesting to hear him talk about how other, pre- for some reason, needing to bring in what other presidents did. But uh, again, it's always it's always in relation to other presidents, specifically Obama. Like, oh, well, I'm doing this differently than Obama, or I'm doing this better than Obama. And the other thing that that I noticed that happened there that happens a lot is when President Trump says something and is called out and said, what you said isn't true, he often immediately walks back to, well, that's what I was told. I was told this by somebody. There's that immediate semi-retreat. So let's let's pick up where we left off. We're now all the way to Tuesday. Uh, and in an appearance on Fox News Radio, President Trump takes it one step further. To the best of my knowledge, I think I've called every family of somebody that's died and it's the hardest call to make. And I said it very loud and clear yesterday. The hardest thing for me to do is do that. Now, as far as other uh, representatives, I don't know. I mean, you could ask General Kelly, did he get a call from Obama? You could ask other people. I don't know what Obama's policy was. I write letters and I also call. Okay, so President Trump mentions General Kelly there. That's his chief of staff, who is also a gold star father. Uh, His son died in Afghanistan in 2010. We're going to get to that in a second. But before we do, President Trump on Tuesday night, according to the White House, called all of the families of the fallen. And that included Sergeant LaDavid Johnson's family. And while the family got the call, they were, I guess, in a car together. Congresswoman Frederica Wilson was also in the car with them. Uh, she is a Democratic congresswoman from Florida, and she was on CNN describing the call. He feels no pity or sympathy for anyone. This is a grieving widow, a grieving widow who is six months pregnant. This is a young woman. She's only 24 years old. She weighs maybe... 110 pounds. And she has two other kids, two years old and six years old. And when she actually hung up the phone, she looked at me and said, he didn't even know his name. Can I just say why we're even talking about this in the first place makes me feel very uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, this is a very difficult situation for any of these families to be going through. And the fact that we're talking about it on a podcast, the fact that it's plastered all over cable TV, the fact that a Democratic congresswoman who doesn't like President Trump has decided to spill details of what should be a private conversation, nothing looks good in any of this. And it's very frustrating to have to cover something that you feel like is not really where we should be at in our politics. Earlier, we heard tape of President Trump saying that you could ask General Kelly if he got a call from Obama after Kelly's son was killed. This afternoon, General Kelly came to the White House press briefing room for what was, I don't know, how would you guys describe it? I mean, it was it was a stunning. It was, it was, it was emotional. A, it was emotional. It was it was really heavy to talk about, to sort of give the full context of how we got here from from where he stands, and also to take the congresswoman to task. But let's start at the beginning. Let's start where Kelly started, describing uh, what happens after a service member dies. Their buddies wrap them up in whatever passes as a shroud, puts them on a helicopter as a routine, and sends them home. Uh, Their first stop along the way is when they're packed in ice, uh, typically at at the airhead, and then they're flown to use a Europe. 
uh, where they're then packed in ice again and flown to Dover Air Force Base, where Dover takes care of the uh, remains uh, and bombs them, uh, meticulously dresses them in their uniform with the, rebel with the medals that they've earned, the emblems of their service, and then puts them on another airplane linked up with a casualty officer escort that takes them home. And he said that while that is happening, sort of a parallel process is happening with the families. Typically, the only phone calls the family receives are the most important phone calls they can imagine, and that is from their buddies. In my case, hours after my son was killed, his friends were calling us from Afghanistan, telling us what a great guy he was. Those are the only phone calls that really matter. And yeah, the, the uh, letters count to a degree, but uh, there's not much that really can take the edge off what a family member is going through. So um, some presidents have elected to call. All presidents, I believe, have elected to send letters. Um, if you elect to call a family like this, it is about the most difficult thing you could imagine. There's no perfect way to make that phone call. Uh, when I took this job uh, and talked to President uh, uh, Trump about how to do it, my first recommendation was he not do it. Uh, because it's not the phone call that parents, family members are looking forward to. It's nice to do, in my opinion, in any event. My first recommendation was that he not do it. And I found that instinct on his part to be really interesting because look at where we are. I mean, this game of telephone has gotten so far out of control where, uh, you know, the president goes and tries to say, tries to translate what John Kelly is telling him with all his emotion and everything that and all of his years of service to a president who is clearly uh, – uncomfortable making this call, but wants to do it. So President Trump's coming at a place with maybe the best of intentions here, wanting to comfort these family members, wanting to be able to do something that he thinks is meaningful. But Kelly's warning him, this is really tricky stuff. This is really complicated. And your best bet's probably not to do this because this is very hard. Yeah. I mean, I think you could tell in Kelly's voice how disgusted he was about the entire politicization of the process. So about this question of whether Obama called Kelly, Kelly presented it in sort of a different way than Trump had presented it? Yeah. He asked me about pre previous presidents. And I said, I can tell you that President Obama, who uh, was my commander in chief when I was on active duty, uh, did not call my family. That was not a criticism. That was just to simply say, I don't believe President Obama called. That's not a negative thing. Uh, I don't believe President Bush called in all cases. Um, I don't believe any president, particularly when the casualty rates are very, very high, that presidents call. But I believe they're all right. But just like Domenico said, a message can sound different coming from, from John Kelly than, than President Trump. I think that's a good example of it right there, because the way Trump said, go ask General Kelly if, if Obama called him. It sounded like competitive and a slight and an insult 
as opposed to Kelly saying, he didn't call me. That was fine. He did other things. And I didn't want the call. And here's the thing. Maybe it wasn't that intention from President Trump. Like, maybe not. Like, maybe he wasn't actually trying to say, like, I want to be competitive with President Obama. Like, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt and think that maybe he's actually trying to say, you know, the same way that he's actually maybe has the best of intentions with these military families, that maybe the tone comes off differently. And maybe it's also in the ear of the beholder, right? I mean, if, you know, you're a member of the media and there's a certain narrative about Donald Trump and he says it in a certain way and it plays into a narrative, then people go to a conclusion that maybe is not what President Trump actually meant. Yeah. And that gets us to the actual phone call that President Trump made to Sergeant LaDavid Johnson's widow. And Kelly said that Trump asked him before he made these calls, like, what do I say? Like, and, and I think Trump acknowledged, like, I haven't served. I haven't had a loss like this. What do I say? And Kelly said, well, this is what I would say. This is what the man who told me about my son's death said to me. And he said to me, what do I say? Uh, I said to him, sir, there's nothing you can do to lighten the burden on these families. But let me tell you what I tell him. And what, let me tell you what my best friend, Joe Dunford, told me, because he was my casualty officer. He said, Kel, um, he was doing exactly what he wanted to do when he was killed. He knew what he was getting into by joining the, that 1%. He knew what the possibilities were because we're at war. And when he died, in the four cases we're talking about in Azure, my son's case in Afghanistan, when he died, he was surrounded by the best men on this earth, his friends. That's what the president tried to say to, a fam- to four families the other day. That's what the president tried to say. Essentially, President Trump did say this, but it's Even all Even though President in... Trump denied it. Well, so this is actually a, like a side thing that I find kind of interesting. President Trump immediately after Congresswoman Wilson went and we can discuss whether or not it was appropriate for her to go and reveal the pieces of this conversation and her interpretation of it. But, you know, she goes out and does that. And then President Trump immediately tweets, this is fabricated. And I have proof. Well, right. And the thing is, essentially, John Kelly is saying, no, that's exactly what the president said. So Kelly is like basically coming in, trying to add this context, trying to explain why the White House says that the president wasn't being uh, inappropriate. Yeah. And you could tell that Kelly was just bothered by this entire thing start to finish. And as he was especially bothered by the fact that Congresswoman Wilson went on TV earlier this week to criticize Trump in that phone call and also to to give details of that phone call, which she was you know in the car for as it happened. I was stunned when I came to work yesterday morning and broken hearted at what I saw a member of Congress doing. A member of Congress who listened in on a phone call from the President of the United States to a young wife, and in his way tried to express that opinion. He's a brave man, a fallen hero. He knew what he was getting himself into because he enlisted. There's no reason to enlist. He enlisted. And he was where he wanted to be 
exactly where he wanted to be with exactly the people he wanted to be with when his life was taken. That was the message. That was the message that was transmitted. It stuns me that a member of Congress would have listened in on that conversation. And Kelly went on to say that he was so upset by all of this that he yesterday went to Arlington National Cemetery and just spent an hour walking around there by himself. And he tried to say, can't we keep this sacred? Like, this is the one thing that, you know, that he was kind of hoping could stay sacred within American life. I mean, I think he was clearly passionate feeling that way. And I think a lot of people on all sides of the equation feel that way as well. But I think Kelly was missing one big factor in why things like this keep happening. And that's the fact that that his boss, the president, often begins these news cycles, begins these conversations. And yet the conversation is somehow going to continue focusing on a feud. Yep. But there you go. All right. uh, It is time to take a break. Support for NPR Politics and the following message come from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage gives you confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. With Rocket Mortgage, you can apply simply and understand all the details so you can mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash NPR politics. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Before we get to healthcare, President Trump today met in the Oval Office with Puerto Rico's governor, Ricardo Rosseo. He came into Washington to ask for more help. And by way of an update, just 21 percent of the territory has power restored and 28 percent of people still lack clean drinking water, which is a significant improvement. But it has been a month since Hurricane Maria hit. President Trump gave his own assessment of the federal government's performance. I'd say it was a 10 I'd say it was probably the most difficult um, when you talk about relief, when you talk about search, when you talk about all of the different levels. uh, And even when you talk about lives saved, uh, you look at the number. I mean, this was, I think it was worse than Katrina. It was in many ways worse than anything people have ever seen. And then later during this media availability in the Oval Office, he turned to Governor Rosseo and asked him to weigh in. Did the United States, did our government, when we came in, did we do a great job? Military, first responders, uh, FEMA, did we do a great job? You responded immediately, sir, and and you did so. Uh, You know, Tom and... Uh, Brock, they have been on the phone with me essentially every every day since the uh, disaster. So Rosseo also said that, you know, several times that the president's commitment, that the president was committed that the federal government would be there for the long term, which is different than President Trump having basically said that, you know, the U.S. government couldn't be there forever, couldn't keep troops there for the long term. But this is going to be a long term recovery. Okay. Now to health care. Senators Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray have introduced a bill that would, for the next couple of years, stabilize the insurance markets under the Affordable Care Act. Alexander is a Republican. Murray is a Democrat. And the bill has some things in it that Republicans have been after, and it has some things that Democrats want. But the headline is that it would continue funding something known as cost-sharing reduction payments. Uh, These uh, would be the very subsidies that last week President Trump announced he was going to stop paying. So, Scott. Yes. What's up with this bill? 
well, I can tell you about the bill, but put a giant asterisk on everything I say for something we're going to talk to in the moment, and that's where the White House stands on this bill. Yeah, let's get to that Because that's an important factor, and it's changed a lot over the course of the week. But to the bill itself and what's going on in Congress, Alexander and Murray have been working on this for a while, and uh, it's been a back burner thing that every time the Republicans thought they were close to actually outright repealing Obamacare, this would lose momentum. And then when a repeal effort would fail, this would start being talked about again. Um, it's a bipartisan move to stabilize the markets by by extending those subsidies for two years, same subsidies that President Trump last week said he was going to get rid of. But this also provides some flexibility, which is one of the things Republicans have wanted all along. Um, it's all within the, the, the scope of Obamacare, but it would allow states to apply for waivers to, to have basically stripped down health care plans available. Uh, that would speed up the process of the federal government okaying that. And would it also uh, broaden the, the pool of people who can apply for, for really bare bones, catastrophic plans, like a plan that covers you if you... If you fall off a building or something like you're that, but otherwise, truck, but yeah, not if you get cancer or strep throat. Yeah, but you know, if you're if you're a young, healthy person who needs a bridge between jobs or something like that, it, it's something that might make sense for you. So anyway, those are the gives and the takes. There's a bipartisan buy-in to this bill. In fact, just a few moments ago, they uh, announced co-sponsors, and this is pretty significant because. 12 Democrats and 12 Republicans have signed on to this bill saying that they co-sponsor it, they support it. It's not an overwhelming number, but it's a pretty substantial number of, of uh, co-sponsors from both parties and, and signifies that this, is, this would have support moving forward in the Senate, even though, and here's where it gets confusing, uh, Republican leadership, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, other top Republicans have been a little bit lukewarm to the idea. And President Trump, I would ask you, Tam, how would you describe how President Trump views this bill? What time is it? <laughs> <laughs> let's just let's just go to where he ended up, which was earlier today. He was asked about it in uh, the Oval Office during that press availability that he had with the governor of Puerto Rico. Uh, and this seems to be at the moment where President Trump has landed. I respect very much the two senators you're talking about. I love that they're working on it. I want them to be careful with respect to the insurance companies. Insurance companies are extremely good at making money, extremely talented at making money. And I want them to be careful with that. Uh, we will probably like a very short-term solution until we hit the block grants, until that all kicks in. In other words, it doesn't just kick in the following day. There's a transition period. Uh, and if they can do something like that, I'm open to it. But I don't want it to be at the expense of the people. I want, it, I want to take care of our people. I don't want to take care of our insurance companies. So let me just translate what he's saying there. He still wants to repeal and replace Obamacare. He thinks the best way to do it would be something called block grants to basically give states a bunch of money and say, you figure it out. We talked a lot about block grants when we talked about Graham-Cassidy. Exactly. But that couldn't go into to effect right away. So in the interim, because he still thinks that they're going to be able to repeal and replace Obamacare eventually. In the interim, he's open to something that is like this, but, he and it's a very big but, he does not want the insurance companies bailed out. 
And, th- and this is the key, because think about the messaging that President Trump tried with Make America Great Again. It's very black and white. It's something you can understand. It's very plain language. If someone were to say President Trump is trying to bail out insurance companies, that is very plain language. And he's trying to say, I'm not bailing out insurance companies. This money goes to insurance companies, and I don't like it. I don't like that the money goes to insurance companies, which have lower favorability ratings than the media. <laughs> <laughs> He's working on it, though. Maybe eventually will be worse. Maybe. But so, like, President Trump doesn't want to be tagged in that way, and he doesn't want it to, to you know, be money that has to be used, um, you know, for insurance companies' profits. But here's the key. The Murray Alexander bill has language in it, and Lamar Alexander stressed this, that says that the money has to go toward reducing people's premiums. And while we're having this semantic back and forth on whether or not the money goes to insurance companies or whether it will go to reduce premiums, people will be affected if this stands and Congress doesn't make a fix and President Trump got rid of those subsidy payments and the Congressional Budget Office says that by next year, people who have been relying on these subsidies will see their premiums go up 20 percent or more. I think the big picture thing here. Yeah, let's get out of the weeds. (laughs) Is that Congress has no idea how to negotiate with, how to to, to work with the White House when, when the president keeps changing his mind. And that's that's frustration for Republicans. They're less willing to talk about it publicly than Democrats. But uh, when this happened, when Trump changed his mind and, and after seeming to support this deal, came out against it, uh, Chuck Schumer held a, an impromptu press conference where he talked about the fact that Trump has now done this with, with Murray Alexander, but he also did it with DACA. And, and Schumer seemed visibly frustrated because he had thought on DACA and then this as well, that Democrats had, had gotten some sort of big picture agreement with Trump. So here's what he said about that. This president cannot govern if whenever the hard right frightens him and says jump, he says how high. We saw this in the um, DACA agreement. Nancy Pelosi and I met with the president in front of all his staff, and we agreed that we would support the Durbin-Graham bill, and we would work on border security. And it was agreed to. The Freedom Caucus was iffy. The uh, right wing, Koch brothers, uh, Heritage Foundation all opposed it. So yesterday he says it's a good deal. And today he's saying it's not a good deal. You cannot govern if you let the hard right run things. They're far away from where the American people are. They're not even where the Republican Party is. And let's just be clear that the right probably doesn't like this deal. The far right in in the House certainly is not going to like this deal. It's not clear whether leadership in either the House or the Senate is really all that interested in bringing this up. They want a tax system overhaul. And not to spoil my can't let it go, but kind of to spoil my can't let it go. We're going to have to see what happens. And now it's time to end the show as we always do with Can't Let It Go, where we all share one thing we cannot stop talking about this week, politics or otherwise. Who wants to go first? Okay, well, I can go. Okay, Uh, Domenico. You know, I mean, President Trump, we've been talking about this week, uh, had sort of implicitly criticized President Obama for, uh, you know, not calling uh, families of service members who had died. 
but we know that that wasn't true, that the president had actually done that. But there was this story that may tell you a little bit as to what President Obama actually valued, and that was writing letters, <laughs> because the letters that were revealed uh, this week were love letters that President Obama had written to his college girlfriend at Occidental College sometime between 1982 and 1984. This was before email. It's before or email text. and before Michelle. We should say yes, right. Um, the uh, the headline on some on on a couple stories is "My love is rich and plentiful." As pre- <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, fun fact about Occidental College. You know that's where they taped nine hundred two one zero. You know what else it's, they taped? Star Trek three: The Search for Spock. Seriously? <laughs> yep. At Occidental College. Wow. Way to when they bring when they it. reanimate Spock, it's way to anyway. make it incredibly nerdy, Scott Detrow. So he said, "It seems we will ever want." What we cannot have, that's what binds us. That's what keeps us apart. So he was questioning their relationship oh, uh, with a woman named Alexandra McNear. And he was, was during a trip to Indonesia in the summer of 1983. And the letters were gotten by Emory University, the, the Stuart A. Rose Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library, which is in possession of this. So if you want to read more of them, you can go there. Two thoughts. One, I feel like few people in the world would want to be confronted oh with love letters they wrote uh-huh. in their teens or early 20s. Uh-huh. Two, <laughs> early 20s Obama, every indication is, was just as serious as president of the United States in his early 50s Obama. But it fits being president yes. much more than being like a, an early 20s. It's was all... he fun to hang out with? Like, I don't know. Well, I mean, he was, he was he part of the Chum Gang. The I don't Chum know. The Chum Gang thing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he write. Okay, here's another piece. I trust you know that I miss you. That my concern for you is as wide as the air. My confidence in you as deep as the sea. My love, rich and plentiful. Love, Barack. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that if you found the letters that my now husband and I wrote back and forth, uh-huh. <laughs> there was nothing yeah. nearly that poetic. Totally. Look, we were all goofy kids and said stuff that we thought was way more important than it probably deserved. Uh, to be thought of as. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> Scott, what can't you let go of? So what I can't let go of this week and what I'm staying up late at night watching is the baseball oh, playoffs. That's why you're tired. We've talked about them before. Uh, we've continued to talk about them. There have been highs and lows. Many of us like the Washington Nationals living in D.C. now, but many of us have the teams we grew up watching and I am a Yankees fan, and it is very fun and surprising to see a Yankees team go this deep, but go this deep without any expectations. Domenico can tell you that the problem with being associated with the Yankees is it often comes with like this self-importance and this this mindset of if we don't win the World Series, it's a terrible year, and we you know, yep. and. They have had periods where they're just not that likable because of that and because of the fact they load themselves up with free agents who come in at like age 35 and underperform and and over over just kind of be jerks on the team, I guess. I don't know if there's a phrase for that. But it's uh, I mean nobody likes a winner, right? Like, no, it's not that. It's not that. It's that they're just so like jerks. They're just so like overstuffed sometimes in some periods of the franchise. And look, here's the thing. I'm a Mets fan. We all know this, right? And that means I have lived in the shadow of the Yankees my entire life. My brother and my dad are both big Yankees fans, whatever. But I have to say, even myself, I have been rooting for the Yankees. Right. Because, because, okay, I've just, I've been watching. I've been keeping an eye on it when I've been out. 
you know, and I've been like seeing, okay, what is the score? How's it go? Because these guys are kind of joyful. Like they are actually enjoying being part of this. You know, a lot of new guys on the team uh, and guys who are just sort of like, you know, they seem fun. Like they seem to actually enjoy uh playing baseball for playing baseball. And it's like, you know, as a New Yorker, I was kind of like, all right, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's, they are all young and having fun and didn't expect to get this far. And there's like a relaxed, joyful way that, that a team plays when that's the case. And it doesn't happen that often with the Yankees. So I'm, I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> Tam, what can you not let go? So uh, I am working on a story about a phrase that President Trump has been using a lot. Now, we all know that he says big league a lot and we all know that he says believe me a lot. But he also says with incredible regularity. We will see what happens pretty soon. A lot of people are guessing, Mm -hmm. but maybe there's not so much guessing. We will see what happens with Iran. So let's see what happens. We'll see what happens. It's going to be a very close vote. And I think something can happen. We'll see what happens, but something will happen. We'll see what happens. We have a big court case. We're well represented. uh, And we're going to see what happens. And we'll see what happens. Okay. Well, we know something will happen. The remarkable thing is the just sheer number of things that he says we will see what happens. And sometimes it's sort of like it seems like a veiled threat. Sometimes it kind of seems like he has no idea what's going to happen. Sometimes he seems to know what is going to happen. But he's just saying, like, stay tuned until after the commercial break. Find out who gets fired. It would be a great threat, though, to pull off with your kids if you did something ominous like that. And you're like, you know what? We'll see what happens. We'll just we'll just we'll just see what happens. Okay. (laughs) remember when I was little, my parents would always say, we'll see when you ask something. And I was like, we'll see just means no. (laughs) Well, uh, you usually did. Yeah. When it comes to the Iran (laughs) nuclear deal and some other things, Paris Climate Accord. Yeah, it just means no. All right, that is a wrap for this week. We'll be back in your feed soon. Keep up with our coverage on NPR.org, NPR Politics on Facebook, and of course, on your local public radio station. Chicago, we're coming this weekend. And there are still some tickets left this Sunday, October 22nd at the Athenaeum Theater. For tickets and more information, go to wbez.org slash events. We're all really looking forward to meeting you and seeing you and talking at you from a stage. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And you know what, Tam? We'll see what happens. Something we'll, We know we'll this. Something will happen. Something will have happened by the time you listen to this podcast. And we'll be there to, we'll be there to cover it. <laughs> that much we know. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 